This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, Mike Malloy, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Onion Radio News with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. to tell you about a problem in capitalism today. I love capitalism. I think it's the economic system that best fits human nature. But it has developed a virus that threatens the whole system, and we've got to fix it so we can save capitalism. Today, Goldman Sachs came out with a report that criticizes some banking regulations. The regulation, in essence, would require them to keep a certain amount of money in the bank to pay people if their bets go the wrong way. Now, that's incredibly logical. The lack of cash to pay off positions is part of what brought down Lehman Brothers and consequently the whole system with it. But Goldman isn't concerned with logic. They're concerned with profits. The more they can gamble, the more they can win. Now to be accurate, it's not really how much Goldman can win, it's how much the executives who work there can win and take home. This is actually the problem in our system that is threatening the heart of capitalism. The executives in publicly traded companies don't have skin in the game. If they lose their bets, they don't lose money. The shareholders do. So in their view, who cares? For example, one of the principal men who sank AIG was Joe Cassano. When he lost his bets, he was eventually removed from the company. But let's take a look at the results of that. He got to keep his $600 million that he made while running their financial products division, and the American taxpayer got stuck with a $182 billion bill. Cassano wasn't gambling with his own money. He was ultimately gambling with your money. But when he lost your money, he got to keep his earlier winnings anyway. But even if taxpayers aren't involved, it's the shareholders that take the hit, not the executives. Do you know that none of the privately held financial companies crashed during the 2008 financial collapse? It's because the partners were invested in their companies. It was their money and they didn't want to lose it. So they didn't take the same kind of risk that the publicly traded companies did. You see, that makes sense. That's why we have to change the system. I call this the Cassano loophole. And it isn't just about AIG or Goldman Sachs. It's about the whole system. It incentivizes corporate executives to take higher risks for higher rewards because they don't bear the cost if it goes wrong. That isn't capitalism. That's a perversion of free markets. The game is rigged at this point, and I'd vote for any party that took that on. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, that's the change we voted for. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the change we got in this financial reform package, and if we don't do it soon and fix this up, we're all going to be in a lot of trouble because they're going to keep on taking those risks, and unfortunately, that's going to lead to more and more crashes that we're going to have to pay for. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. Touch your lips just so I'm 
This is not the time for political fun and games. This is the time for a new beginning. I ask you now to put aside any feelings of frustration or helplessness about our political institutions and join me in this dramatic but responsible plan. Join me. President Ronald Wilson Reagan addressing the country from the Oval Office in July of 1981. President Reagan had assumed office just six months earlier. The nation was mired in a bad recession and Mr. Reagan used the power and the prestige of a primetime Oval Office address to present his way out, his vision of how the country could get back on its economic feet. In a few days, the Congress will stand at the fork of two roads. One road is all too familiar to us. It leads ultimately to higher taxes. The other road promises to renew the American spirit. It's a road of hope and opportunity. It places the direction of your life back in your hands where it belongs. Tax cuts, not just any tax cuts, the largest set of tax cuts this country had ever seen. With all sorts of charts and graphs at his disposal, President Reagan walked the country step by step through his tax plan. An across-the-board tax cut of 25% for all income brackets. Everybody gets a tax cut. After months of selling his plan, Congress finally passed it, and President Reagan signed it into law. This represents $750 billion in tax cuts over the next five years. And this is only the beginning. And thus was born a new economic philosophy, Reaganomics. Cutting government spending, cutting regulation, and cutting taxes. Cutting taxes especially for the richest Americans. President Reagan's tax plan cut the top tax rate for the wealthiest Americans from 70% to 50%. Why cut taxes so dramatically for the richest of the rich in the middle of a recession? More trickle-down economics trickle-down economics. Trickle-down economics. The idea of trickle-down economics is basically this. You cut tax rates for the richest Americans, therefore the richest Americans have more. They have more money in their pockets. Therefore they have more money to spend and invest. And as they spend and invest, the effect of rich people's good fortune and rich people's spending trickles down to everybody else in the economy. A rising tide lifts all boats, right? That was the idea. That was the plan. That did not happen. Reaganomics was a spectacular success in some ways. It was a spectacular success for the richest Americans in the country who benefited the most from President Reagan's historic debt-exploding, budget-busting tax cuts. In 1980, the top 1% of Americans earned wages of about $110,000 a year. By 1990, after about 10 years of Reaganomics, boing, the top 1% had seen their wages rise by 80%. Trickle-down economics, though, right? What's good for the rich is good for all of us, right? Not quite. Here's the average wages of the rest of the country in 1980, and here's what happened for the rest of the country after about 10 years of Reaganomics. Flat. A whopping 3% rise in wages in 10 years. The richest people see their fortunes go up like the Matterhorn. Everybody else, feh, nothing. This is what family income growth looked like during the 1980s. Look at that. The richest 1% of Americans had an awesome decade. They saw their family income skyrocket by 74%. Everybody else, not so much. In fact, the poorest Americans saw their income shrink by more than 4%. That was Reaganomics. That was what Reaganomics did. That was the impact of Reaganomics. That was the results of this experiment called trickle-down economics. The rich did great. Everybody else, still waiting for the trickle.
Today, downtown Chicago is getting ready for the Christmas shopping season, but the merchants in one neighborhood, Inglewood, expect little Christmas business this year. Most of their customers are on public aid, which has been cut by the Reagan administration. At Judge Barber's furniture store, pre-Christmas sales have not attracted shoppers and Barber blames Reaganomics. The customers that are coming in are certainly less than those that were coming in before the economics of Mr. Reagan's took place. But some people elsewhere will be spending more this Christmas at luxury stores like Neiman Marcus in Northbrook, Illinois, a wealthy suburb of Chicago. Store manager Larry Gore predicts record sales, especially in jewelry and furs. Gore says his customers have more to spend this year because of the Reagan tax cuts. At the end of 1989, after eight years of Reaganomics, here's where the country stood. Income gap between richest and poorest, biggest since 1947. That was the headline on UPI on December 30th, 1989. That month, Congress released a report on Reaganomics that concluded, quote, upper income Americans were the main direct beneficiaries of tax cuts in the early 80s. There's no evidence in our data that those benefits have trickled down. Aside from not trickling, the era of Reaganomics also had one other awesome side effect. When President Reagan came into office in 1981, he inherited a $994 million national debt. By the time he left, it had ballooned to $2.6 billion. Ronald Reagan, patron saint of fiscal conservatism, supposedly, grew the national debt by an astonishing 186% during his eight years in office, which is what tends to happen when the government drastically reduces the amount of tax revenue it collects. When the Reagan folks tried to argue that the huge deficits they were creating were not that big of a deal, they were kindly corrected by editorials like this one in the Washington Post from January 1988. Quote, the deficit is a terrible legacy for which the country will be paying socially as well as financially for years. The only thing worse would be to believe the gloss now being put on it that would condemn another generation to repeat what the country should repent instead. So the largest income inequality since the government started tracking those things and a skyrocketing national debt. Thank you, Reaganomics. And this is only the beginning. On that point, Ronald Reagan was right. Trickle-down economics is back. It's making a comeback. What we've got to do is try, as we may, and, and see if we can deliver to make sure that tax rates don't go up on anybody. What we need is to get the entrepreneurs and investors back being willing to commit capital. Anybody that thinks that raising taxes on job creators is going to create jobs, I, I think is going to meet with an argument from me. You can't have a healthy economy if you raise taxes on those uh, that uh, you expect to reinvest in the economy and to hire more people. You can't have a healthy economy unless you give special bonus tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires. If millionaires and billionaires can't get an extra tax cut, nobody else should get a tax cut either. Everybody else's taxes can go up. Those are the people, those rich people, those are the ones who invest. Give them money and watch it trickle down to everybody else. Go ahead, watch it trickle down to everybody else. Just watch, see what happens. Watch the country right itself by giving massive tax cuts to the super rich. Average hourly wages have dropped four and a half percent that five million workers have lost their jobs because of factory closings and corporate cutbacks, and that the nation's richest families are getting a bigger slice of the economic pie, while the growing number of poor people are getting a smaller slice. Just watch. There is a key difference, of course, between now and 1981. Now, we have a president in the White House who doesn't subscribe to the economic theory that one of his Republican predecessors used to call voodoo economics. We've been told that the way to a stronger economy was to give huge tax breaks to corporations and the wealthiest Americans, and somehow prosperity would trickle down. 
Well, now we know the truth. It didn't work. Instead of prosperity trickling down, pain has trickled up. It didn't work. Giving billions of dollars in tax breaks to the super rich did not work. The difference between now and 1981 is not on the Republican side. They're still selling trickle down. The difference between now and then is the president now doesn't buy it. And the rest of us know what happened the last time somebody tried to promise us a trickle. Tomorrow, Democrats in the United States Senate have an opportunity to render their judgment. A return to trickle down economics or not. Speaking of people outside the United States with um, astute comments, um, Der Spiegel, this is an alternate. Um, why Germans think we're insane. This is a good piece. Let me share it with you. Uh, it's written by, uh, I don't know. But it was that alternate. As an American expat living in the European Union, I've started to see America from a different perspective. The European Union has a larger economy and more people than America does. So it spends less, right around 9% of G, uh, uh, GNP on medical, whereas in the, uh, we in the U.S. spend close to between 15 to 16% on medical. The European Union pretty much ensures 100% of its population. And they spend less than we do, of course. The U.S. has 59 million people medically uninsured, 132 million without dental insurance, 60 million without paid sick leave, 40 million on food stamps. Everybody in the European Union has cradle-to-grave access to universal medical and a dental plan by law. The law also requires paid sick leave paid annual leave, paid maternity leave. When you realize all of that, it becomes easy to understand why many Europeans think America has gone insane. Der Spiegel has run an interesting feature called A Superpower in Decline, which attempts to explain to a German audience such odd phenomena as the rise of the Tea Party without the hedging or attempts at balance found in mainstream U.S. media. On the Tea Parties, Der Spiegel writes, The Tea Party, that group of white older voters who claim that they want their country back, is angry. Fox News host Glenn Beck, a recovering alcoholic who likens Obama to Adolf Hitler, is angry. Beck doesn't quite know what he wants to be, maybe a politician, maybe a preacher, and he doesn't know what he wants to do either. At least he hasn't come up with any specific ideas or plans, but he is full of hatred. End quote. The piece, according to Aldernet, then continues with the sobering assessment that America's actual unemployment rate isn't really 10%, but close to 20%. When we factor in the number of people who have stopped looking for work. Some social scientists think that making sure large-scale crime or fascism never takes root in Europe again 
requires a taxpayer investment in a strong social safety net. Really? Can we learn from Europe? Isn't it better to invest in a social safety net than in a large criminal justice system? Oh, by the way, in America, over two million people are locked down. Unlike here in the United States, in Germany, jobless benefits never run out. Not only that, as part of their social safety net, all job seekers continue to be medically insured, as are their families. Wow. Yeah, but look at Greece. Yeah, but look at Ireland, right? Ha, ha, ha. What about Spain, Portugal? Ha, ha, ha. In the German jobless benefit system, when jobless benefit one runs out, jobless benefit two kicks in. That one never gets cut off. The jobless also have contributions made for their pensions. They receive other types of insurance coverage from the state. As you can imagine, the estimated 2 million unemployed Americans who almost had no benefits this Christmas seems a particular horror show to Europeans, made worse by the fact that the U.S. government does not provide any medical insurance to American unemployment recipients. Europeans routinely recoil at that in disbelief and disgust. Yeah, but we always win the Super Bowl <laughs> and the World Series. In another piece, the Spiegel magazine steps away from statistics and tells the story of Pam Brown, who personifies what is coming to be known as the Nouveau American Poor. Pam Brown was a former executive assistant on Wall Street, and her shocking decline has become part of the American story. To wit, American society is breaking apart. This is Der Spiegel. Millions of people have lost their jobs and fallen into poverty. Among them, for the first time, are many middle-class families. Meet Pam Brown from New York, whose life changed overnight. The crisis caught her unprepared. It was horrible. Ms. Brown remembers, overnight I found myself on the wrong side of the fence. It never occurred to me that something like this could happen to me. I got very depressed. Brown sits in a cheap diner on West 14th Street in Manhattan, stirring her $1.35 coffee. That's all she orders. It's too late for breakfast and too early for lunch. She also needs to save money. Until early 2009, Brown worked as an executive assistant on Wall Street, earning more than $80,000 a year, living in a six-bedroom house with her three sons. Today, she's long-term unemployed and has to make do with a tiny one-bedroom in the Bronx. She must have lived in uh, Long Island. There's no such thing as a six-bedroom house in Manhattan that you can have for $80,000 a year, right? It's important to note that no country in the European Union uses food stamps in order to humiliate it's disadvantaged citizens in the grocery checkout line. Even worse is the fact that even the humbling food stamp allotment may not provide enough food for America's jobless families. So it is on a recurring, reoccurring basis that some of these families report eating out of garbage cans to the European media. Quote, 
For Pam Brown, last winter was the worst. One day she ran out of food completely and had to go through trash cans. She fell into a deep depression. For many, like Brown, the downfall is a Kafkaesque odyssey, a humiliation hard to comprehend. Help is not in sight. Their government and their society have abandoned them. Pam Brown and her children were disturbingly, indeed incomprehensibly, allowed to fall straight to the bottom. The richest country in the world becomes morally bankrupt when someone like Pam Brown and her children have to pick through trash to eat. Abandoned with a callous disregard by the American government, people like Brown have found themselves dispossessed due to the robber baron actions of the Wall Street elite. And a shocking headline from a Swiss newspaper reads, Hunger in the Land of the Big Mac. Though the article is in German, the pictures are worth a thousand words and need no translation. Given the fact that the Swiss virtually eliminated hunger, how do we as Americans think they view these pictures? Do you know a Pam Brown? I don't know a Pam Brown yet. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm not aware that anyone I know has to pick through garbage cans. I do know some people who are desperately trying to hold on. And so far have held on. Truly, when you compare what we do to our unemployed, our uninsured, and you compare it to our brothers and sisters in Europe, <laughs> and I don't care where you're originally from, I don't care if you're South American, African, European, Australian, if you live here, you're an American citizen. It's it's just unbelievable that we can look to the east and see what they're doing, and then we look here and see what we're doing. I don't know. Audible, an Amazon company, may have 85,000 audiobooks, but they don't have my favorite book of all time, The Solitaire Mystery by Yostine Garter. It's out of print, hard to come by, and the audio version only comes on cassette tapes. So you could go to audiblepodcast.com slash best to get a free audiobook of your choice, and I'm not saying you won't find anything worth reading. I'm just saying you'll have to settle for one of the 85,000 books that doesn't contain the most fun and insightful story I've ever read. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to be only minorly disappointed by the selection of audiobooks available. Overlooked in the debate so far is how to pay for the tax cuts, which will cost the U.S. an estimated $4 trillion just over the next 10 years, plus interest. Earlier today, Mr. Obama said that raising our deficit will make America less competitive. I'm looking at the books back in Washington, and, and folks weren't, weren't doing a real good job with their math for the last decade. So, so, 
So now that the threat of a depression has passed and a recovery is beginning to take hold, reducing our long-term deficit has to be a priority. And in the long run, we won't be able to compete with countries like China if we keep borrowing from countries like China. Already, about half of America's debt is bought by China and other countries. In a countdown special report tonight, we calculated how much extending the Bush tax cuts will increase that debt to China and to other countries. It's an issue that both parties claim they care about. Nothing's more important than us no longer borrowing uh, $700 billion or more from China. One of the major reasons why we're in the difficulties we're in today is because spending got out of control. We owe China $500 billion. In a Democratic poll this spring, more voters named U.S. debt to China as a top concern than any other issue. A nonpartisan group ran a campaign ad imagining the future of our debt to China. <laughs> <laughs> you can change the future. You have to. Join Citizens Against Government Waste to stop the spending that is bankrupting America. A Tea Party ad with Victoria Jackson imagined a past in which our founding fathers reacted to our debt to China. Congress said the only way out of debt is to get more into debt. <laughs> And then we borrow money from China. <laughs> China! <laughs> so, why does U.S. debt to China matter? Hard-working people come and say, Senator, they're closing this factory down and shipping our jobs overseas. Why can't we get tough on China? And I say, because of the debt that this government under this president has exploded, we are now dependent upon China, and how do you get tough on your banker? Oh, we're no longer putting China at the top of our list anymore for spying. Really? Now, why wouldn't we do that? Why isn't China at the top of our list? They should be. They've earned it. They sure. They sure They're always hacking it. into our computers. Right. Same reason why during the Bush administration, when we were having running these deficits, and I was talking about Bush, stop with the deficits. Why aren't we complaining about poison toys that they're sending over? Of course. Right. Because we need their money. The co-chairs of the president's bipartisan panel on debt reduction wrote in their report last week, quote, the single largest foreign holder of our debt is China a nation that may not share our country's aspirations and strategic interests. Former Bush Secretary Hank Paulson claims that Russia, in 2008, tried to team up with China to sell off big chunks of their holdings in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the U.S. government-backed mortgage financers. Russia denies it, but Paulson says the motive was to try and force a U.S. government bailout. After the U.S. revealed this February a new round of arms sales to Taiwan, Chinese Major General Liu Yan told a Chinese government-run magazine, quote, We could sanction the U.S. using economic means, such as dumping some U.S. government bonds. The new House Majority Leader admits that extending the Bush tax cuts will force America to borrow more money. Um, if you have less revenues coming into the federal government, and more expenditures, what does that add up to? Certainly, you're going to dig, dig the hole deeper. The U.S. is already in the hole $883 billion just to China, more than double what it held in U.S. Treasuries just three years ago. 
Already, American taxpayers pay China $50 billion in interest every year right now. But if foreign powers buy U.S. debt for the next 10 years in the same proportion they hold it now, another 10 years of the Bush tax cuts will put us in the hole to Russia by another $60 billion and to China by another $420 billion. Nearly half a trillion dollars of new Chinese debt, plus interest. And that's just based on the borrowing we know about. In March, economist Simon Johnson spoke to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission about a $170 billion increase in the U.K.'s holdings of U.S. Treasuries. A great deal of that increase, he said, quote, may be due to China placing offshore dollars in London-based banks. At the time, the U.K. held a total of $279 billion in U.S. debt. In the six months since then, that has increased by another $180 billion, making the U.K. and its unknown customers the third largest holder of U.S. debt. Caribbean banking centers and their unknown customers come in at number six, with $145 billion in U.S. Treasury securities. But what about countries less friendly to the U.S.? The U.S. Treasury website lists oil exporting countries as the fourth largest holder of U.S. debt, with $230 billion in U.S. Treasuries. This summer, Secretary Tim Geithner traveled to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, selling them more U.S. debt. How did he do? He won't tell us. In fact, the Treasury Department won't reveal how much individual oil exporting countries hold, or have ever held in U.S. Treasuries. In 1974, Treasury Secretary William Simon struck a deal with Saudi Arabia for the Saudis to start buying billions of dollars of U.S. debt. Secretly. A secret Treasury memo to then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger explained that, quote, purchases under this agreement over the next six months are expected to be approximately $2.5 billion. The scene qua non for the Saudis in this arrangement is confidentiality, and we have assured them that we will do everything in our power to comply with their desires. And so they have. From the Carter administration through today, other OPEC countries also buying U.S. debt in secret. Treasury refusing to break out dollar figures for countries such as the United Arab Emirates, Libya, and Iran. Iran? Treasury forms for those buying U.S. Treasuries include a country code for Iran. 42307. The list of major foreign official institutions includes the Central Bank of the Islamic Republic of Iran and other Iranian entities. How much debt they hold, and will hold if the Bush tax cuts continue, only Washington and Tehran know for sure. Today we asked the White House and congressional leaders in both parties specifically these two questions. A, how much are they willing to borrow from each of these countries to finance extension of the Bush tax cuts? And B, whether they will reveal how much U.S. debt is bought by oil exporting countries to finance extension of the Bush tax cuts? No comment from the Republican Party tonight. Speaker Pelosi, also no comment so far. We have a guest from the White House standing by to join us, and Senate Leader Harry Reid's office replied by email, quote, not sure what to say. Needless to say, your question does not lend itself to quick answers. If the choice is borrowing money from these countries or doing nothing, which is the reality we find ourselves in, and that the economy could tank and millions could lose their jobs if we do nothing, which would you choose? No one has said so far that they will tell the American public how much they'll borrow from whom. I'm not gonna get down on my knees. 
take you someplace for a minute. I want you to imagine um, that you are in one of the great college football stadiums here in the United States. Let's just say for the sake of argument, Ben, bunch of stuff person that you are, that we're talking about, I can't decide between Tennessee or Michigan, we'll just say the big house in Michigan holds over 100,000 people, and I want you to imagine that it's absolutely jam-packed with people, and they're all there to hear an important speaker talk about an important subject, and I should point out that the 100,000 plus people there are the top 100,000 or so richest Americans in the world. Okay, the richest hundred thousand. You know, number one's there, number two's there, all the way down to number one hundred and what is it, twelve thousand? How many do they hold there now, Ben? Uh, number one hundred and twelve or so thousandth on the list, all there, talking amongst each other, drinking, um, you know, fabulously wealthy um, and expensive wines, and and having uh, caterers probably go by in the stands, and they're waiting to hear this important announcement. And let's just say for the sake of argument that the person making the announcement is Bill Gates. And I want you to imagine that Bill Gates and Microsoft have invented a time machine. And that he's back from time traveling. Obviously, you know, it didn't work on the first time, but with a few service pack updates and after a few crashes and everything, finally, you know, he boots up and it works and he's back. And he has an announcement to his if not peers, then brethren here in the wealthy confines of the stadium filled with the uber-rich in the American society, and it's not pleasant news. He's there to tell the um, you know top 1% of the economy that he's been to the future, and it's terrible. And that within the next 5 to 10 years, a great many of them will be dead, Many of them will be exiled. Much of their stuff will be expropriated. And their children will be destitute and living in foreign lands for fear of returning to their home country. I want you to imagine that Bill Gates has seen the near future of the United States and it looks a heck of a lot like the French Revolution. What he's there to tell these people is that the circumstances amongst the poor and what were probably the former middle-class earners in American society has become so bad in the next few years that they had no recourse and that their anger and their fear and their stress and their you know cynicism about the system had exploded. And just like the French Revolution, it became unpredictable and extreme. And, of course, the people that had the anger turned against them with the most violence were the people that were perceived to be doing the best in the system, the people who were filling Michigan's football stadium that day. Now, if Bill Gates were able to time travel and that that was the message he brought back to his peers, what do you think they'd do about it? If they were told in no uncertain terms that their world as they knew it was going to be overthrown by the, you know, unwashed masses who'd had enough of their circumstances and the way the system appeared to them from their point of view at the bottom of the income scale, what do you think those people would do? There's all kinds of possibilities, aren't there? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is that they would be looking heavily at upping the security, getting the government more involved in 
riot control um, techniques and maybe fortifying their compounds a little bit more and hiring a um, you know armed guard, those kind of things. That's one way it could go. Another way, of course, is um, you know a foretaste of what actually did happen in the French Revolution, where a lot of them would say, "Well, why wait? I'll just put all my money into gold bars and jewels, and I'm off to Qatar or Kuwait or." You know, Russia is actually a nice place for a person with a lot of money. Depends on, you know, what you have a lot of money for. Maybe they just flee now and avoid the rush. But the reason I brought it up is because I wonder if Bill Gates came out like that, becoming sort of like Superman's father in the Superman story, saying the world's going to end in a very short period of time. And they turn around and thought, well, let's prevent the world from ending. Let's solve this problem that's got the masses so upset that they're ready to, you know, break out the guillotines and put our heads on pikes. And let's fix that problem before it gets to the point where that happens. That's where I want to take the conversation now. And let me tell you what prompted the discussion. There was a piece in the Los Angeles Times um, this week, actually, um, and it's it's one of those pieces that, you know, you could just put in a file with about 25 other pieces very similar to it that have been appearing lately. If you want to call it the latest fad in economic writing, maybe you could. And it's another one of these pieces talking about the, you know, gap between the rich and the poor in the United States. And it's becoming fashionable to point out that the income disparity, as it's called, between the highest earners and the lowest earners in American society is as bad as it's been since what was called the Gilded Age. And it might not be actually as bad as the Gilded Age. This article that I'm going to quote you in a second calls it as bad as the Great Depression. But the Gilded Age was the era in the late 19th century when you had these um, wealthy people who were making so much money that their names are today even household names, people like the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies, and um, the Rockefellers, those kinds of people, right? Well, this piece talks about the same things that many of these other pieces talk about, about the need to do something about this problem. What's interesting about it is that they've conducted a poll talking to Americans of all income levels and all political persuasions, asking them their opinion of the problem. Let me go into this article a little bit with you. Um. This one is written by Michael Norton and Dan Ariely, and um, they are identified as a Norton is called an associate professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Behavioral Economics at Duke University and the author of The Upside of Irrationality, The Unexpected Benefits of Defying Logic at Work and at Home. And here's what the article says from the beginning. Quote, the gap between the wealthiest Americans and the poorest is bigger than at any time since the 1920s, just before the Depression. According to an analysis this year by Edward Wolf of the New York University, the top 20% of wealthy individuals own about 85% of the wealth, while the bottom 40% own very near 0%. Many in that bottom 40% not only have no assets, they have negative net wealth. 
A gap this pronounced, the article says, raises the politically divisive question of whether there is a need for wealth redistribution in the United States. This central question underlies such hot-button issues as whether the Bush tax cuts should be allowed to expire and whether the government should provide more assistance to the poor. But before those issues can be addressed, the article says, it's important to understand how Americans feel about their country's increasing economic polarity. End quote. They say this, quote, We recently asked a representative sample of more than 5,000 Americans, young and old, men and women, rich and poor, liberal and conservative, to answer two questions. They first were asked to estimate the current levels of wealth inequality in the United States, and then they were asked about what they saw as an ideal level of wealth inequality. In our survey, Americans drastically underestimated the current gap between the very rich and the poor. The typical respondent, the article says, believed that the top 20% of Americans owned 60% of the wealth, and the bottom 40% owned 10%. They knew, in other words, that wealth in the United States was not distributed equally, but were unaware of just how unequal that distribution was. They say, when we asked respondents to tell us what their ideal distribution of wealth was, things got even more interesting. Americans wanted the top 20% to own just over 30% of the wealth, and the bottom 40% to own about 25%. They still wanted the rich to be richer than the poor, but they wanted the disparity to be much less extreme. The article continues, quote, but was there consensus among Americans about their ideal country? Importantly, the answer was an unequivocal yes. While liberals and the poor favored slightly more equal distributions than conservatives and the wealthy, a large majority of every group we surveyed, from the poorest to the richest, from the most conservative to the most liberal, agreed that the current level of wealth inequality was too high and wanted a more equitable distribution of wealth. In fact, they write, Americans reported wanting to live in a country that looks more like Sweden than the United States. They say, quote, So if Americans say they want a country that is more equal than they believe it to be, and they believe the country is more equal than it actually is, the question becomes, how do we lessen these disparities? End quote. The article ends by saying this, quote, Despite these reservations, our results suggest that policies that increase inequality, those that favor the wealthy, say, or that place a greater burden on the poor, are unlikely to reflect the desires of Americans from across the political and economic spectrum. Rather, they seem to favor policies that involve taking from the rich and giving to the poor. End quote. So sort of a Robin Hood ending to that piece. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene And still found plenty of time to sing It's the Onion Radio News U.S. middlemen demand protection from being cut out This is Doyle Redland reporting 
Some 20,000 members of the Association of American Middlemen marched on the National Mall today, demanding protection from such outcutting shopping options as online purchasing, factory direct catalogs, and outlet malls. Euclid, Ohio waterbed retailer Peter Hume was among the marchers. Look, each year in this country, thousands of hardworking middlemen are cut out. No one seems to care that our livelihood is being taken away from us. Hume added that the AAM is eager and willing to work with legislators to find alternate means of passing the savings along to you. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. So sort of a Robin Hood ending to that piece. Now, let me just say before we go off on the main topic, I found that piece particularly interesting over a bunch of the other articles on similar subjects because it's interesting to find out that many of the people who are doing well in the society and that fall into the conservative camp um, also feel that this wealth inequality is a problem. One of the richest men in America is a guy named Warren Buffett, and many of you... Uh, Financially oriented people will recognize the name, and Buffett has famously said that he's undertaxed. Now, I want to get to the conclusion that those folks made at the end of that article, though, for a second, because I would consider that to be a rather typical liberal argument about the problem, and I consider it to be incorrect. I think it skirts the problem, this whole Robin Hood aspect, that the problem with wealth inequality is that there's this gap between rich and poor, and that the gap itself is the problem. Because if you imagine simply taking from the rich, let's just imagine for a second that we um, that we took in a Robin Hood type fashion from the rich and threw it into the government coffers. Where is the assumption that that money is going to help out the poor at all? How do we know that that's not just going to be spent on financing a war against Iran, for example, or deciding to give out pork projects, you know, on the um, study of uh, pig wastes in Iowa? You know, because some senators got a constituency in his home state that he wants to reward. In other words, simply taking from the rich will shrink that difference between what the rich and the poor have. So there, this problem of this wealth inequality goes away. But it doesn't necessarily help the very people that is implied in the story as being the ones who need help. You're not helping the poor and what are still for a little while at least, um, you know, clinging by the skin of their teeth to the middle class. By simply taking money from the rich. And if you simply took money from the rich and just gave it to the poor, which some of these other articles I've been reading suggest, you know, what you ought to do is you ought to take this money from the rich and give all the poor people a giant chunk of change. You know, give it to them in tax cuts or give it to them in earned income credits or just give them cash. I heard one guy just said, just take $2,000 and give it to every single poor person and middle class person in the country. That'll jumpstart the economy and that will shrink your wealth inequality. Yeah, but a year from that time... How many of those poor and middle class people are still being helped, you know, by that Robin Hood approach to fixing the wealth inequality? This reminds me of that old biblical line about the difference between giving someone fish and you feed them for a day 
and teaching them how to fish and you feed them forever, right? That's what we need to be doing here is teaching people how to fish somehow. How do you do that? Well, let's go back to our 100,000 or so extremely wealthy people in Michigan's football stadium listening to Bill Gates talk to them. There's an old line from a guy named Samuel Johnson. And the line is, it's been misquoted many times. It's be- Some of the misquotes, Ben, are actually better than the uh, real quote. But the real quote is, when a man knows he's about to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. If you told all those people that they were going to have their world overturned by a bunch of poor and formerly middle-class folks with torches and pitchforks and you know tar and a bunch of feathers standing by, and that they had between five and ten years to forestall that reality, you know, concentrating their minds wonderfully as they contemplated the hanging in a, you know, virtual fortnight. What could those people do about this? You know, this whole idea of, well, just take from the rich and give to the poor is so simplistic as to be laughable. People don't need an influx of cash. They need prosperity. And that's two different things. And truthfully, what prosperity really means, as we all know, are jobs. And not just jobs, but good jobs. And not just good jobs, but long-term good jobs. The sorts of jobs that we're told are gone in the new economy. And, you know, people who don't keep up are going to be left behind. And that's just, you know, hey, it's, it's competition. One wonders if the people who spout such things would be so cavalier about doing it if they knew that the people who lost out in this competition were going to cut their heads off with a guillotine in the next, you know, decade sometime. I guess what I'm wondering with this you know, virtual image I keep putting in your head, folks, is could the great American capitalists, these people who have always prided themselves on being able to build a better mousetrap, could they build a better mousetrap than what we have now if their lives depended on it, if their realities and everything that was important to them depended on it, if this was the most important thing to them, could they change the reality, and especially could they change the reality if they were all working together? Well, let me tell you how they'd be able to change the reality in just one second. They'd be able to make a difference politically. I mean, you want to talk about what the worst potential problem for all of us in this wealth inequality thing is, is who gets the ear of government. There's a reason that poor people are not on the radar of government these days, and that's because they're not giving any money to government. The people that are giving money to government don't care much about the plight of the poor. What if all of a sudden they did? What if that was their number one concern and I'm giving a lot of money to you to fix this poor person problem or this middle class problem or what have you, this jobs problem? And I'll talk to a lot of people that will point out um, something that I think we can all assume is obvious and something that I think a lot of liberal folks ignore when they look at the jobs problem, the employment problem, the problem of um, you know the wealth inequality in the United States. And that's sometimes the condition of American workers and American work ethics and all that. Even if you could make the jobs available overnight, which we all know is not possible, but let's just imagine it was, there's no guaranteeing a lot of the Americans who would need to do those jobs to create the you know, conditions where they were more wealthy, because after all, we're not trying to make the rich people less wealthy. We're trying to make the poor and middle class people more wealthy. There's no guaranteeing, though, that those people have either the skills or the drive or the ambition or the work ethic to do that work. If you went in to the 100,000 or so wealthiest Americans with an understanding that that's a component of the problem, 
when you build this better mousetrap, it has to include all that stuff, too. You have to fix all of it, not just create the jobs, but create the sort of society that, you know, takes Americans and pulls them up by their bootstraps. You know, Ronald Reagan used to say, it was one of his lines, that Americans sometimes just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Wasn't that Reagan, Ben? Am I misquoting? I think it was Reagan, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Somebody said that, and uh, it's an old conservative idea. Um, but what if we're in the condition now where somebody else has to pull them up by their bootstraps? And there's all kinds of situations that crop up when you talk about um, sort of creating Americans' wealth in spite of the Americans. There was an old line by uh, John F. Kennedy, too, where he said famously, and of course, who better to say it, that life's not fair. A handsome, inherited, wealthy American <laughs> with all the breaks in life is perfectly qualified to tell you that life's not fair, but it's not. Now... What if life being more fair, though, impacted all of us? What if our ability to make life more fair for our neighbor was a matter of our own survival? As I've said many times, in a sense, in our country, ladies and gentlemen, maybe even the world, but we'll just stay with our country right now, is like a human body. And to write off other parts of it because it's not doing as well as it should or not making as much of an effort as it should or, you know, fill in the blank, is like telling, you know, a person that their little finger's not doing enough, and if it goes gangrenous, well, that's its own little finger's fault, but eventually that's going to affect the rest of us, and does, and just look at the people hanging out, you know, at the freeway exits with the signs, you know, blighting every community of decent size in this country. Those people weren't there 20 years ago. Now, imagine those people quadrupling in numbers, getting more desperate and seeing people drive by in their Rolls Royces heading to their gated communities. You know, history shows that there's a limit and a tolerance to how long that can go on before things reach a point where the very people who will talk about life not being fair will find out exactly what that means when the other side decides to take matters into their own hands and equalize the fairness a little bit. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called into the voicemail line. I actually did get a call into the voicemail line, uh, unlike in the previous show, uh, but ironically, I'm skipping them today because I have something far better and special for you guys today. But if you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on a future episode, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, I know what you're thinking. What is so special this time? I, I, I feel like I have special things going on all the time. Lots of special things going on. What's going on today is that tomorrow, January 27th, 2011, is the five-year anniversary of the Best of the Left podcast. Congratulations all around. Cheers. Applause. Now, uh, so I'm feeling warm and fuzzy and nostalgic about the whole thing, and I want to play for you guys the single most fun thing I've ever tried to do on the show. Now, you guys know I play clips from other shows and then I just kind of talk at the end, but I'm not a professional broadcaster. I'm just some dude. I talk at the end of my own show and, uh, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, one time in my illustrious podcasting career did I actually try to make an, an actual radio story. That's the story I'm going to play for you today. This was back in March 2007. 
I am easily my own worst critic about this uh, this piece of audio, but um, but I'm going to play it for you anyways. Uh, keep in mind that when I did this, I had been a self-taught audio uh, technician for just over a year. So um, to a large extent, I didn't uh, know what I was doing. But this is a radio story that I produced, and it was played on, uh, on a March 2007 edition of The Best of the Left. It is an over-the-top parody, all in good fun. You will uh, know very soon what what show I am imitating. And, uh, of course, remember that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So what I'm going to play for you is just the very end of that original episode. This is a clip of the Young Turks discussing uh, a crazy couple who are protesting the, the showing of an inconvenient truth in their child's school. So that's where this clip picks up. You'll hear the end of their discussion about that issue. The show, you know, the original show will end as a normal show ends, and then it'll go right into this uh, special uh, radio story that I want you guys to hear, and then I'll be back at the end to wrap things up. Frosty Hardison and his wife, Gayla, said they would prefer that the movie not be shown at all in schools. From what I've seen of this movie... Uh, and what my husband has expressed to me, she says, which means... Uh, she didn't what, see the movie. Yeah, what, what I've seen of this movie means... Movie? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I mean, it means I saw the trailer and then my husband told me what was in it. Right. From what I've seen of the movie and what my husband has expressed to me, if the movie is going to take the approach of bad America, bad America, I don't think it should be shown at all. Is it ever, anything more obvious that somebody hasn't seen the movie? If you're going to come, just going to come and say America is creating the rotten ruin of the world, I don't think the video should be shown. Uh, do you, but Ben, to be fair to them, you remember the part of the Inconvenient Truth where Al Gore put that slide up about how bad America was? That was my favorite part of the movie, of course. Right. And then chart li- kept going up and up and up on how bad America was. I'm a liberal. That was awesome. Yeah. I hate America. I recently moved from one coast of this country to the other, to Washington, D.C., to be exact, and I I came for a few reasons. I hated Sacramento, I hated my job, but I loved politics and wanted to get involved, and where do people who like politics go? You know, it just made sense. Along the way, I traded my old hybrid car for an equally efficient yet far cheaper biodiesel running Volkswagen. Now, these two cars, I think, are indicative of a couple of things. One is that I no longer had a job and needed to slash expenses drastically. But the other is that I've discovered, kind of within myself recently, that environmental issues, specifically global warming, is right at the top of my list of political passions. It's important to me what kind of an effect I'm having on the planet as long as I'm here to have one. It's the Best of the Left podcast distributed by bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Each week we choose a theme, bring you a variety of stories on that theme. This week on our program, as you've been hearing, global warming. Today in our final act, the environmental story of my move 
to within the Beltway, yet outside the border of Washington, D.C. On the trip, I did lots of research about appropriate places to try to land near D.C. and got lots of advice from all kinds of sources. There was one place that kept popping into conversations, though, Tacoma Park, Maryland. I'd, I'd done some research on the place myself and liked what I saw, but it was also right at the top of everybody's recommendation list. However, there was one story about a stove that pretty much clinched it. Well, okay, so... On September 11, 2001, he was installing this stove in his house. This is my mother. She's relating the story of Mike Tidwell, a Tacoma Park resident who heats his house with a stove that burns organic corn. He tells the story in his newest book, The Ravaging Tide. He said, you know, that that was, you know, his fight against global warming, but then after the terrorists struck, the um, the trade center, he said, okay, this is my personal, you know, way to fight terrorism because I'm not going to be using petroleum-based products to heat my house anymore. It was a good idea, and it spread. First, just a few of his friends bought corn stoves, then a few more. They were making weekly trips out to the farmer to buy corn to heat all their houses. All the driving was beginning to wear on them when the farmer made a recommendation. I guess they said something about it to the farmer, and he suggested that what they needed was a silo in town where they could just he could come and unload the corn, and then you know people could come and, and uh, pick it up there. So when news of the idea of the in-town silo and the convenience it would bring spread, so did the demand for corn stoves. Citizens of Tacoma Park were able to band together and convince the manufacturer of the stoves to give them a $4,000 grant to build a silo on city property. And the city council, being a bunch of tree-hugging liberals themselves, went along with the idea. So, somewhere in Tacoma Park is a corn silo. And in a bunch of other places, there are little uh, organic corn-burning furnaces heating homes. Exactly. And and that's the story that you heard that, that made you call me and practically insist that I move to Tacoma Park because it's such a cool place. About a week after getting that original phone call, I was staying in Northern Virginia with the very kind-hearted listener, Parker, who had opened his spare room to me to use while I was looking for a permanent place to stay in D.C. I had arrived in Virginia just in time to make it to the big anti-war rally on the National Mall at the end of January, which is how I spent my first day in Washington in over 10 years. The day after the rally was set aside to really buckle down on Craigslist and find myself a place to live. That evening, I was telling Parker, who is an environmental advocate himself, 
about the Ravaging Tide and the story of the corn stoves, especially since Parker was another one of those people who had put Tacoma Park right at the top of his recommendation list for me. As I told the story, I looked up the book on Amazon just to show him and, and give him the author's name in case he wanted to find it later. And it was at that moment that I began receiving my first uh, Craigslist responses. As I was telling the story and looking up the book and reading my emails from the Craigslist people, it took me a couple of minutes to really put all the pieces together. But finally, one email did actually catch my eye. It was the first one to come in, and then everything really fell into place. And that first emailer to respond became my landlord just two days later. Here, here's actually the interesting part of the story that I get to tell you now. I moved into Mike Tidwell's house. <laughs> and he's a really nice guy. I'm going to see you. <laughs> I'm zero. first day in Virginia, the day right before the rally, I had the great pleasure of going out to dinner with a fantastic listener known to his friends as Dakota Bill and his wife. During the meal, she asked me what my plans were from that point on, and I told her I really didn't have any plans, but my passions were global warming and media, and I just kind of trusted that something would fall into my lap. Well, she had a good laugh at that and said that I really must be from California to be able to think like that. And then on, on top of that, as an interesting side note, he also runs a radio show here in town um, but he's having a little trouble, and so he's looking for some help to get his podcast up and running. I see. So, it just, it seems too good to be true for both of us, so, here I am. Oh, man! I mean, is that like karma, or what? This is karma's gonna get you Gonna knock you right on the head You can find out more about Mike Tidwell and the books he's written, including Bayou Farewell, in which he predicted Hurricane Katrina and the destruction of Louisiana, and the post-Katrina follow-up, 
the ravaging tide, which has been described as a militantly passionate indictment of our non-responsiveness to global warming. Just visit bestofleftpodcast.com and follow the links in the show notes of this episode. You can learn more about his clean energy house, which is heated by organic corn and powered by solar panels, in which I am currently residing, by reading the recent Washington Post article, Living Lightly on the Grid. Today's show was produced by myself, with the help of the entire Best of the Left community, including the aforementioned Dakota Bill, and Billy Baptism, who also runs the entire website and community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Special thanks for production inspiration today to Ira Glass, who, when asked what he thought about some runt stealing all of his ideas to make a political podcast, puzzlingly responded, I hate America! I'm Jay, from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., and being kept warm by corn. Be sure to join us next week for more stories from the best of the left. So there you go. That is how the story aired originally back in 2007. Uh, But I'm sure you may be wondering what the updates are that followed, which I'm happy to share now. So I lived with Mike Tidwell in his house for a total of around four months. So uh, just just around a month after that radio story aired, the uh, living situation at, at the house changed. The uh, spare bedroom that I was renting became uh, unavailable to rent. And so I was very, very uh, nicely and graciously asked to move out. Um, but then uh, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because uh, just in the neighborhood of one week after I moved out, I was awoken at around nine in the morning by Mike and the conversation went something basically like this. And he said, hey Jay, how's it going? And I said, oh, pretty good. He said, "Uh, how's the new place? And I said, "Uh, well, it's pretty good. He said, and how's the new roommate? And I said, good. And he said, "Uh, you know, how's, how's your job going? I said, good. Uh, he said, so, um, would you like a, a, a new job? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, okay, well, why don't you come by the office today and, uh, and we'll get that set up. So that was basically the interview process for the job that I took and held for about two and a half years as a climate activist while living in Washington, D.C., of course, I held that job uh, right up into the point when, as you all are so painfully aware by the advertisement that runs for the membership program on this show and every episode, uh, I had that job right up until I quit to pursue this show full time. So uh, it was a hell of an interesting way to uh, enter enter the world of uh, you know politics and activism by uh, showing up in Washington, having no idea how I was going to get involved, and basically fell. Uh, completely luckily into everything I ended up doing. A lot of parallels can be drawn between that and uh, the production of this show coming to the end of five years now of doing this show has been another completely separate wild ride uh, that has been nothing but serendipitously wonderful at just about every turn. So I like to mention every once in a while at least because I feel it uh, just bursting out of me that 
I feel like the absolute luckiest person in the world to be able to do this show. Um, I, I mean, I felt lucky to be able to do it before it was a job, and it's it's an amazing, amazing thing uh, that I can do what I absolutely have fallen in love with over the last few years, and that you as the listeners have uh, been supportive enough of the show, told enough of your friends, built the audience, uh, joined as members, donated, you know, all of the things you guys do has uh, supported enough that I can do this full time. And I just couldn't possibly be more grateful, couldn't possibly be more happy with, uh, with, you know, my situation in life. And, uh, so as I always do, just sometimes more uh, emphatically than others, just want to thank you guys for the support and tell you, as always, that you can stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and find details about the show, including links to all of the sources and music to this and every episode in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. 